0: Part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage is the tradition of the free pulpit and the free pew. The freedom of the pulpit means that I'm encouraged to preach about whatever I think would be significant and meaningful for us to consider. The freedom of the pew means that you're not expected to believe something just because it's spoken from the pulpit. Not that that's a particular concern with most Unitarian Universalists. Uh, Perhaps the opposite. I'm trying to get you to uh, believe stuff. Uh, Right? (laughs) So there's a lot of jokes there that I will uh, leave on the side. That being said, once a year, we hold an auction of all sorts of items contributed by UUCF members and friends. Uh, Special opportunities, uh, dinners, trips are all offered to the highest bidder. Be on the lookout for our next congregational auction in early November. It's an evening that includes dinner, uh, special music, many other festivities for all ages that you won't want to miss. But I bring up the auction now because each year I offer to preach a sermon at the, of the highest bidder's uh, choice. Whatever topic you are passionate about or think would be particularly challenging or meaningful, meaningful or pr- provocative. So it's a chance for the freedom of the pew to directly impact the freedom of the pulpit. So if there's a sermon you've been hoping to hear, our upcoming auction may be the chance. Well, you at least get to pick the topic. You don't get to tell me what to preach about that topic. But you can preach the topic and affect the angle a little bit. One year, a few years ago, the topic was bullying. I was like, no, I'm assuming you want me to be against it, right? So... Last year, Bob Ladner was the highest bidder of our auction sermon, and he chose modern uncertainty as the topic. More specifically, he emailed me that in the 19th century, Robert Browning could write, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. There was a high level of certainty that we were on a path also to an earthly paradise. At the dawn of the 20th century, however, quantum effects disrupted the view of science. Uh, the view of science that nature was predictable at the most basic level. Wittgenstein questioned if there were indeed any philosophical questions or misunderstandings from the ambiguity of language. Gödel, then Turing, and von Neumann shook the foundations of mathematics. Richard Rorty points out that all is contingent and the ascendancy of Europe and the United States was only an accident of timing. Now, you all know that I like to get a little nerdy sometimes, but I don't think Bob is just taunting me to get my nerd on. Uh... I understand this topic as a challenge to take seriously our UU fifth source, humanist teachings which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. Almost uh, 2,500 years ago, Socrates loved to expose the ways that many people are deluded about how much they think they know. Uh, In contrast, Socrates used to brag that he was the wisest person in Athens, not because he knew a lot, but because he seemed to be one of the few people who were willing to admit how much they didn't know. His advantage was that he didn't fool himself about the level of certainty that was possible in the world. 2,500 years later, here in the early 21st century, we know that Socrates didn't know or didn't not know even half of it. There's so much more that we know that we don't know than Socrates could have ever dreamed of not knowing. (laughs) To quote one of the few lines from Donald Rumsfeld worth remembering, (laughs) there are known knowns There are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. In the early 21st century, despite all that we know, we are increasingly aware of all those pesky known unknowns, and that there probably are all these unknown unknowns that we can't even begin to wrap our mind around because of our finite human capacities. As the scientist J.S. Haldane said about the implications of quantum physics, he said that the universe seems not only queerer than we supposed, but queerer than we can suppose. Now since this is our annual auction sermon, allow me to spend just a little time unpacking some of Bob's email about uh, this setting of modern uncertainty as a way of moving forward. Bob's opening lines were that in the 19th century, Robert Browning could write, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. There was a high level of certainty that we were on the path to an earthly paradise. And it is indeed true that when Browning published that poem in 1841 in the wake of the Industrial Revolution and all of these amazing changes that had come in the ensuing decades, it was much easier to make the argument then that we were on our way as a species to building a utopia on this planet. To consider our uh, 19th century UU forebears, many of whom shared uh, utopian ideals, in 1886, the Unitarian minister James Freeman Clark published his famous Five Points to a New Theology. Now, I won't get too much into this, but those of you who may have come from a more conservative theological background, Calvinism, Christian Calvinism famously has five points. I won't get into all that, but that's why... Clark chose his five points as it was a refutation of Calvinistic, you know, predestination and sinfulness and total depravity. Um, I really want to go into that, but I'm not going to let myself cause we'll be here all day. Uh, so, so, uh, so Clark's five points to a new theology were meant as touchstones for religion in a modern age. Keep in mind, as I'm about to read those, that he was writing almost a century before second wave feminism. So you'll, uh, have, well, you don't have to forgive his patriarchy, but it's, it's there. So. Uh, so his five points were the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, the leadership of Jesus, salvation by character, and the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. That's how it seemed to him, the sort of inevitable way that things were going to be in the late 19th century looking forward. So to elaborate briefly on what he meant, you know, the fatherhood of God that we all share, all humans share a common source. The brotherhood of man, so we're all part of the same human family. The leadership of Jesus, and that he meant that through emulating Jesus' ethics. For Clark, it, in our UU forebears in the 19th century, it wasn't about worshipping Jesus, it was about um, following his ethics Salvation by character, by how you were in the world, human freedom and responsibility. And finally, this progress of mankind onward and upward forever. You can particularly see that 19th century optimism in that final point. But during World War I, in, you know, just a few decades later in the early 20th century, we saw just devastatingly that this same technology of the Industrial Revolution that had such promise for increasing our quality of life you know, and keeping us from starving and creating food and you know, housing for everyone, it also had potential to create carnage on a previously unimagined level. It's like the Civil War was terrible. World War I had the machine gun, and it's just devastating. So compared to Clark's optimism about the inevitable progress of mankind onward and upward forever, consider the first stanza of William Butler Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, written in 1919 in the immediate aftermath of World War I. He wrote, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. So instead of the fatherhood of God, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. Instead of the leadership of Jesus, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The bl- Mere Anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed in everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. That belief that things are just going to keep getting better, that was drowned. And then these devastating final uh, lines of that stanza. The best, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Has no um, lessons for us today at all, right? <laughs> So it remains quite relevant a, a century after its writing. Now one common way of tracing the history of ideas is this turn from modernism to postmodernism. modernism that, that began with the global trauma of the First World War. The move from a trust that there was this one grand overarching narrative of moving, uh, you know, of progress to a fragmented, uncertain collective of worldviews of many competing, even contradictory narratives about how the world is or how the world should be. That's how we find ourselves today. Many of you have previously heard me trace a a simplified uh, history of major decentering, so going from that centered narrative to to being decentered through representative figures like Copernicus and Darwin. It used to be more reasonable to understand our species and our planet as the center of life, the universe, and everything. But in the 16th century, Copernicus de-centered our planet, showing through careful observations that Earth is not the center of the universe. We're just the third rock from the sun. In the 19th century, Darwin de our species, showing through careful observation, just like the caveman, that we are not special creations who are a little lower than the angels. We're just a little higher than the apes and deeply interconnected with the ecosystems of this fragile planet. In the early 20th century, our place in the universe just got wilder. When Einstein decentered space and time of all things, written now as one hyphenated word space time. It turns out that time is not just simply a succession of evenly spaced out moments, right? The faster you get, the closer you get to the speed of light, things are relative to one another, space and time. Similarly, space cannot just be simply seen as a collection of pre-existing points set out in a container, as it were, for matter to inhabit. Rather, in the words of one physicist, spatiality is intraactively produced... Spatiality, not interactively, intra with an A, intraactively produced space-time. So, uh, so not interactively. It's not as if space and time are two separate things that come together and sometimes you know play in the sandbox. So, rather, they are always already intraactive. Think about the difference between intermural's, right? I-N-T-E-R, between two schools, and intramurals, that's when you compete with people from your own school. Competition from within instead of between. So returning to Bob's email, he wrote, at the dawn of the 20th century, quantum effects disrupted the the view of science that nature was predictable at the most basic level. Wittgenstein questioned whether there were indeed any philosophical questions or only misunderstandings because of the ambiguity of language. Gödel then turning and von Neumann shook the foundations of mathematics. Now I have a forthcoming sermon, it may not be, it will not be this year, it may be next year on Wittgenstein, so I'm not going to go into that uh, right now, into depth on that, but I will talk some about this shift that came with quantum physics. In the 17th century, Isaac Newton was a giant figure in the scientific revolution. He helped solidify what is called classic mechanics, hugely advancing our understanding of the laws of motion and of gravity, right? Caveman, drop rock, fall down, go boom, right? So within that Newtonian paradigm, science in many ways seemed clear cut and objective. I'm this objective observer doing these tests, dropping the rocks, taking notes, um, seeing what happens. And everything seemed to sort into one category or the other. A phenomenon being observed might be, for example, a particle or a wave. Totally random uh, example. But as scientists look closer and closer, it turns out that our world is a lot messier and more complex than that. We have well-documented experimental um, proof that light manifests particle behavior under certain circumstances and light manifests wave behavior under other circumstances. Similarly, matter, not just light, manifests wave behavior under the right circumstances. This dynamic is called the wave-particle duality paradox, and it's one of the many examples of what is sometimes called quantum weirdness, (laughs) which calls into question all those conveniently clear-cut categories of classical physics. So related to specifically to uncertainty, one specific aspect of quantum um, weirdness that I should hasten to mention is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which shows at the quantum level that the very act of observation changes the phenomenon being observed. So there is no possibility of being a neutral observer, a notion it turns out that was always an unrealistic dream. We can only estimate probabilities and possibilities from our various intraactive, subjective points of view. Here in the early 21st century, we've come a long way from the idea that we humans are a uniquely special creation at the center of life, the universe, and everything. There are so many more known unknowns than ever before, and we are right to have, or we should have, a certain level of humility in the face of so much modern uncertainty. That being said, I would be remiss if I didn't celebrate how much we do know here in the early 21st century. After all, we live in the age of smartphones, of space travel and the burgeoning promises of nanotechnology. It sometimes feels like, to me, like our technology is actually getting closer and closer to an episode of Star Trek. I'm preaching from an iPad, after all. (laughs) We live in an age in which we have moved from visual light microscopes that many of us grew up with in science labs through electron microscopes, which can examine the structure of molecules, to scanning tunneling microscopes, which can see atoms. An individual atom. What? I mean, that's amazing, right? Uh, Moving to the final sentence of Bob's email, he wrote that the American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty points out that all is contingent. The ascendancy of Europe in America was only an accident of timing. Rorty is relatedly famous as a social constructivist uh, who takes postmodern uncertainty to some pretty extreme places. I'm generally a big fan of Rorty, but my favorite retort to his fairly extreme position that everything is a social construction, even to the extent that there's like not a world out there. It's, just, it's all a social construction. My favorite retort to that comes from the novelist Philip K. Dick, who liked to say that reality, in case you're wondering, is that which doesn't go away when you stop believing in it. <laughs> so I can say, like, I don't believe in this pulpit. But it's still going to be there if I try to walk through it, right? Some of you may know the story from ancient Athens of uh, Diogenes the Cynic, how he refuted uh, Zeno's paradoxes. Zeno would say these things like, if I were to try to walk from here to the front row, well, logically, I could never get there, because to get there, I would have to walk from half the distance there, and then half the distance between that, and half the distance between that, and half the distance between that, and, the between that and so therefore, you just never get there. It'd just be a series of, you know, half the distances. And how did Diogenes the Cynic said, oh, well, I can refute that, logically, and he said, how? (laughs) Now, mathematicians came to let her prove that through infinitesimals, but we will not get into that this morning. Now, as I begin to turn toward my conclusion, allow me to try to stick the landing, as it were. We've all been watching the Olympics this week, right? Uh, By relating back to our UU principles. There is a sense in which the Enlightenment hoped that we humans might eventually know everything. Some of you may know Isaac Asimov's series, The Foundation, right? That he really tried to write the story that what would it be like if we knew everything? And that we might be able to build a utopian society. There's a sense in which that hope in many ways can be seen symbolically represented in our first principle. The inherent worth and dignity of every person. It comes out of that uh, idea. that This beautiful and noble ideal. Don't get me wrong. But it is a very human-centric ideal. It is grounded in a worldview of separate individuals. With inherent worth irrespective of anyone else. But quantum physics challenges this notion of original separateness. We are not separate beings who sometimes interrelate with one another, or sometimes choose to interrelate with our world. Instead, we are always already intra-related. This worldview is represented by our seventh and most recent UU principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence. Indeed, when the late sociologist of religion, Robert Bella, spoke at UU General Assembly in 1998, he challenged us to reverse our first and seventh principle. He said, y'all have got that individual worth thing down pretty well. Y'all are doing pretty well. Let's flip that and live with that seventh principle as the first principle for a while. In his words, give up ontological individualism. So ontological comes from the Greek word for being. So give up that individualism as your starting point. He said, and affirm that human nature is, um, is fundamentally social. Now, for example, this pulpit, right, seems separate and solid, right? Seems pretty solid. But if we were to examine it closely with the right tools, we would see at the atomic level, it is a buzzing sea of particles. As for the void between us, or especially at the subatomic level, it isn't all that it was supposed to be or not be either. According to quantum field theory, the vacuum is far from empty. Indeed, it is teeming with the full set of possibility of what may come to be. Matter is regularly created and destroyed, and the zoo of subatomic particles, including electrons, quarks, positrons, antiquarks, neutrinos, pions, pluons, and photons, those aren't composed of single individual objects occupying specific positions in the vacuum that we call space and time. Not only is that very idea not to be taken for granted, but the very part of the nature of these subatomic particles seems to be wrapped up in a bubbling sea of possibilities. We are not, nor have we ever been, merely separate beings. We are intra-related becomings. We are deeply entangled down to the quantum level. We are not separate observers of our world with some pure perspective. We are inextricably part of that nature that we seek to understand. So in light of all that we know about modern uncertainty and as we seek to live out this seventh principle commitment of respect for the interdependent web of all existence, I'll leave you for now with this quote from the conclusion to an excellent, though challenging book uh, titled, Meeting the Universe Halfway. Quantum physics and the entanglement of matter and meaning It's by Karen Brad. She's a particle physicist who teaches at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She's thought deeply about what it means to try to live from this quantum entanglement perspective. She writes meeting each moment, being alive to the possibilities of becoming. That is an ethical call, an invitation that is written into the very matter of all being and becoming. We need to meet the universe halfway to take responsibility for the role that we play in the world's becoming. So I'll share with you just one final thought. When I was first wrestling with some of these ideas about modern uncertainty, with the idea that, you know, taking seriously what astrophysicists tell us, that in the end, it is not love that wins, uh, entropy wins in the end, right? That one trillion, trillion, trillion years from now, we will not be here. There will be the inevitable heat death of the universe, right? So there's some kind of bleak uh, future for us. Uh, So Thomas Nagel is a philosopher that wrestled with this and saying, so what does that mean? What does it mean if anything I do, similar to what uh, Nancy was writing about, if it doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things? What if there is no grand scheme of things? Who am I? What is art? You know, like, what do we do with this? Uh, Thomas Nagel said, so does that just mean that all of my actions are absurd from the point of view of eternity? And, you know, there is no, whatever, Uh, So what he finally decided at the end of an essay, maybe called The Absurd, I can't remember, but uh, he basically makes the argument that, well, if it is the case that nothing I do here and now means anything in the grand scheme of things one trillion 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 years from now, then I choose to say that what happens one trillion 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 years from now doesn't need to affect me here and now. So as you continue your journey, you can still choose love. You can choose to do justice and to make peace and whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. We are quantumly entangled, I'm told. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.